have a lot of fun today. Um, we're going to see some really cool stuff in Scripture. If you are from Sovereign Joy, some of this we have looked at already. So I, I don't apologize, but just let you know uh, we saw some of this in Exodus. Um, but we will kind of apply it more to the context of the merge. So it will still be beneficial. Well, if you have your confession, go ahead and open to chapter 26 of the church. Chapter 26, and we will briefly read the beginning of paragraph 4, which Jason covered last week. Okay? Chapter 26, paragraph 4. It says, The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church, in whom... By the appointment of the Father, all power for the calling, institution, order, or government of the church is invested in a supreme and sovereign manner. Now, just stop, stop right there. Uh, Jason showed us last week uh, that paragraph 4 is really getting at the fact that Christ alone is the head of the church. He alone is universal, universal uh, bishop or, or pastor or shepherd, if you will, um, and really, for anyone to take that unto themselves, namely the Pope in Rome, is to try to take unto themselves something that was given from the Father to the Son. What I want to draw your attention to, though, is the last portion we read. Namely, not only is the Son the head of the church, but that, quote, by the appointment of the Father, all power for the calling, institution, order, or government of the church is invested in a supreme and sovereign manner in Christ. Now, that's important because those three things really are giving us an outline for, I would say, really the rest of chapter 26, okay? And many of the things that we will look at here or when we go back um, to Friendship Church. For example, look at the beginning of paragraph 5. What does it say? In the execution of this power wherewith he is so entrusted, the Lord Jesus calleth out of the world unto himself. That's calling, right, which is the first thing mentioned in paragraph 4. Paragraph 6 deals with the instituting of the local churches by way of covenanting. It says, the members who have been called by Christ, quote, willingly consent to walk together according to the appointment of Christ. We'll see that consent language is really the language of covenanting, which is how a local visible church is instituted and established. And then if you look at paragraph 7, it moves on to the order or government of the church. It says that Christ has given to every local church all that power and authority, which is in any way needful for their carrying on that order in worship and discipline. So order in government. And then basically, every other paragraph after that, I would say is kind of going more detail into that order in government. It really kind of breaks it down even further, okay? Now, by beginning chapter 26 this way, really with Christ as the focus, Christ is the head, he's the one who receives all the authority and power for all the doings and things of the church, the confession is doing something very important, something I kind of want to hit on today uh, perhaps more than other days. Really, what it's doing is it's saying that the church and all the things about the church in its nature, all those things, it's framing it all as a work of God. Okay, The church is a work of God. 
think that's a helpful way to start off the chapter on the church, and it's a helpful reminder because so often we have all these great debates. Um, So much is written about church government, policy, the nature of the church itself, and yet we kind of tend to maybe just give, give a little bit of lip service, but you know Christ is the head of the church, but we're so focused on our side of it, right? Now, we don't want to minimize the importance of things like how a local church functions, government policy, church's government or policy, those debates and things like that. And yet I think what the confession would remind us of here is that it is God who has the primary hand in the building of the church. Yes, he allows ministers and others to contribute to that building project, but they are simply instruments in the hands of God. It is at the end of the day not our work, not our idea, not our program, but God's. There's so much good that we can take away from uh, meditating on that, just in general, but also as it pertains to the merge. On the one hand, this truth humbles us, I think especially ministers. It humbles us that though we be laboring in God's field, God doesn't need our help, and He's going to accomplish it with or without us. On the other hand, it's also incredibly encouraging to remember that this whole thing, this thing we do, this thing that's been going on for thousands of years is God's idea and project, not man's. That's encouraging because sometimes you, you look out upon the state of the church and you say, perhaps with the famous hymn, though with a scornful wonder, Men see her sore oppressed, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed. You look upon the church and it's like, man, there is so much feebleness there. This thing seems to be teetering and tottering on the brink of destruction. But then to remember, no, let's take our eyes off of our own weaknesses, our own folly, our our own insufficiencies, and remember, this is God's project. (laughs) He's got this. He's not going to fail. He began. He will bring it to completion. I think it's important for us to remember as we go about merging. As far as our role in this process, there are a million things that have to be done. There are legal things. There are financial things. There are practical order of worship things. There is so much to be done. And yet at the end of the day, When finally, Lord willing, Christ Covenant Reformed Baptist Church becomes a thing, that day we will bless the Lord and say, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor build it in vain. The church is God's doing, and he is pleased to use us by his mercy and kindness, but it is God's project. Well, having said that, let's go ahead and consider paragraph five in detail. And for our purposes, I'm going to break it into two parts Uh, though we're only going to get to the first part, and even that is going to be like flying, okay? Um, The first part is that Christ is building his church. Christ is building his church, simple enough. He is the main builder. He is the one calling out the elect from the darkness into his marvelous light. Just as a mason would go, um, uh, where I'm from in California, there's uh, the Santa Ana Riverbed, kind of goes through this area, and you have all these uh, river stones. There's a lot of uh, 
fences that are built with these things, houses. Well, you go out into the Santa Ana riverbed, you grab them, and then you maybe cut them as you need and you fit them into a building. Christ is doing that in this age with his church. He's calling out elect like gathering stones and cutting them and fitting them into his church. The second part, which we will get to next week, is that the natural way that Christ does this is that once he takes these newly cut stones, he puts them not just into his mystical body, but into a visible local body. And really, this shows us that the idea that you can be called by Christ unto to communion with him, but do so outside of the local body permanently, that's not what Christ is doing in the world. That's not what we read from Scripture. And to stay outside of a natural body, a visible church, is unnatural. We might say we're, we're all born in our proverbial birthday suit, as, as we say. But we are quickly swaddled and clothed. And we go through the rest of our life being clothed, and ultimately we are, for the most of us, I guess, all of us, <laughs> buried clothed, unless there's some very strange extenuating circumstances, right? Well, that's how the Christian life is. None of us are born into a local body already, but we want to be quickly clothed with the visible church and remain into it, and ultimately until we are buried, right? We'll look at that next week. Well, having said that, let's look at the first part. Look with me again at paragraph 5. It says, In the execution of this power, wherewith Christ is so entrusted, the Lord Jesus calleth out of the world unto himself, through the ministry of his word, by his Spirit, those that are given unto him by his Father. Here, I would say, we essentially see the truth of what Christ spoke in Matthew 16, 18, when, I, when he said, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. It's kind of funny that so much ink, although it's somewhat understandable, so much ink has been spilled on the first half of that sentence when we kind of barely glance at the last half, when really that's Christ is the main subject of that whole sentence. You almost wonder if the Pope had kept that last phrase better in mind, he might have better interpreted the first, right? The pattern that we see in Scripture is that while there are ministers of the church, there are missionaries, and in the early day of the church there were apostles, there were prophets, Yet, properly speaking, Christ is the one who is building his church. I would say this is what it's getting at right here. Paragraph 5 is interesting, though, because although Christ is the focus, I would say still other lesser builders are implied, right? It's not totally without them, though Christ is the focus. For example, it says that Christ is building his church. He calls the elect by his word and spirit. Well, word there means the word of God, but particularly the preaching and the proclamation of the gospel. And yet, by whom does Christ proclaim his gospel throughout the world? Through ministers, right? We could say lesser builders, if you will. For example, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 1.5, he says, "'For our gospel did not come to you in word only,' but also in power and the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Notice, word and spirit. 
That's how they were called. And yet Paul calls it our gospel. Our proclamation came to you. So the confession in no way denies that. Rather, we would say it implies it. But still, Christ himself is the builder of the church. Now, I'd like us to do something fun. Uh, I hope at the end of the day you will not say, Pastor, we think you had more fun than we had fun. Um, But I would like us to tease out this theme of Christ building his church because it is a very big theme. And it starts early in the Bible, picks up all the way through the prophets, and it's, it's found quite a bit in the New Testament, okay? In order to do that, turn with me to Exodus 35. Exodus 35. We'll look at verses 30 through 35. Now, for context, this chapter is about the construction of the tabernacle, its furniture, the priestly garments, and the gathering of the materials before it begins, okay? It says in verse 30, Then Moses said to the sons of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, and in knowledge, and in all craftsmanship, to make designs for working in gold and in silver and in bronze, and in cutting of stones for setting and in the carving of wood, so as to perform in every inventive work. He has also put in his heart to teach both he and Oholiab, the son of Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to perform every work of an engraver and of a designer and of an embroiderer in blue and in purple and in scarlet material and in fine linen and of a weaver as performers of every work and makers of designs. All right. Well, here we are introduced to these two figures, Bezalel of the tribe of Judah and Aholiab of the tribe of Dan. These two men have a spirit-wrought wisdom for their tasks, and they basically sound like ancient Renaissance men, right? You hear about these these men like Michelangelo. Um, Not only can he paint amazing frescoes, but he can sculpt. He can do all these other things. He writes poetry, right? You read about da Vinci. We call these men polymaths. Because they're not just amazing at one thing, but their brain is just amazing at whatever it attends to. That's kind of Bezalel and Aholiab. They're not just good at metalworking, but with working with stones, carving wood. They're good at working with fabrics, embroidering, anything and everything that has to do with craftsmanship, they are brilliant at, and God has just given them a ton of wisdom. However, they are not the only ones. They're really the overseers. They do have helpers, though, and it says that God put it in their heart to teach. They will teach others. They will be set over projects, just as a master craftsman might have apprentices. So also, these will lead and teach. Now, what I will argue to you right now to get to the point is that Bezalel specifically is a picture of Jesus Christ. 
And that just as Bezalel has spirit-wrought wisdom and skill to build the tabernacle, the dwelling place of, of God, so also Christ is not only the wisdom of God himself, but filled with the Spirit without measure for the task of building the church, the temple, or the dwelling place of God. You might say, well, how do we get there? Well, we could simply say, well, Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says, I will build my church. Boom. Let's close up shop. We'll fellowship the rest of the time. However, the roots of this run really deep. We don't even have time to get in, for example, the issue uh, through Isaiah and the prophets. We can't even look at it there, but we can dig deeper. The next place to look is at the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7. Turn with me there real quick. 2 Samuel chapter 7. And by way of reminder... This chapter begins by David having built his own house. Then he reflects upon the fact that the ark of the Lord is in a tent while he is in a house. And he has what is, I would say, a well-intentioned desire to build a house for the Lord. Uh, And yet, while it was honorable, the Lord ultimately says to him, No, you shall not build a house for me, but I will build a house for you. By house there, he's referring to the Davidic dynasty. God will build David a sure house sometimes called the Bet David, right? It's kind of interesting. Sometimes they'll find stones or pottery from ancient Israel, and it says Bet David, the house of David. It's his dynasty, right? However, in a sense, God will not entirely squash David's desire to build him a house. Rather, he will let his son do so for him. He says in verses 12 through 13, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So there God promises to David that David will never lack a man to sit upon the throne, but what's more, this descendant of David will build a house for God. Now the immediate fulfillment of that is David's son Solomon, right? God establishes Solomon on the throne of his father David, and it is Solomon who will build a temple for the Lord, what we call the Solomonic Temple. However, with Solomon, we begin to see some interesting connections with Bezalel. And it seems, especially with the author of Chronicles, that he's going out of his way to present Solomon as a new Bezalel figure. For example, turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 1. 2 Chronicles chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Now Solomon, the son of David, established himself securely over his kingdom, and the Lord his God was with him and exalted him greatly. Solomon spoke to all Israel, to the commanders of the thousands and of hundreds, and to the judges, to every leader in all Israel, the heads of the father's households. Then Solomon and all the assembly with him went to the high place, which is at Gibeon, for God's tent of meeting was there, which Moses, the servant of God, had made in the wilderness. However, David had brought up the ark of God from Kiriath-Jearim to the place he had prepared for it, for he had pitched a tent for it in Jerusalem. Now the bronze altar 
which Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, had made, was there before the tabernacle of the Lord. And Solomon and the assembly sought it out. Solomon went up there before the Lord to the bronze altar, which was at the tent of meeting, and offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. So just note that Bezalel is mentioned when he really doesn't have to be at all. And it just so happens that the only other place really in which Bezalel is mentioned outside of Exodus happens to be in 2 Chronicles, right before the chapter where Solomon begins to build the temple. Furthermore, consider the parallels between Bezalel and Solomon. Bezalel is a man given tremendous wisdom by God. He's a polymath, if you will. It's a perfect description of Solomon, isn't it? For example, we read of Bezalel, God gifted him to make designs for working in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting of stones for setting and in the carving of wood. And yet we read of Solomon in 1 Kings 4, 32-34. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs. And his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon, even to the hyssop that grows on the wall. He spoke also of animals and birds and creeping things and fish. Men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Furthermore, the author of Chronicles seems to highlight that Solomon's wisdom was a wisdom for all things, as we've just read, but especially a wisdom for the building of the temple. In fact, it's right after the mention of the bronze altar of Bezalel that we're given the account of God's giving Solomon his wisdom, and then it immediately goes to the building of the temple. One commentator says, It is striking to note the only two references to Bezalel outside of Exodus are in Chronicles. It is only after seeking God at the altar built by Bezalel that Solomon is endued with wisdom. For the author of First and Second Kings, this was a wisdom in general, but for the chronicler, it was specifically wisdom for building. He omits the contents of First Kings 3 through 4 and proceeds directly to the building of the temple. Furthermore, in Chronicles, Hiram, the king of Tyre, the friend of David, does not praise God for giving David a wise son over this great people, as he does in First Kings, but for, quote, a wise son who will build. So Solomon's wisdom is a wisdom given for building, just as with Bezalel. And interestingly, commentators point out that just as Bezalel had Aholiab from the tribe of Dan as his partner, so Solomon has a man named Horam Abi. For example, in 2 Chronicles 2, verse 7, Solomon writes to Hiram, the king of Tyre, and he says, now send me a skilled man to work in gold, silver, brass, and iron, and in purple, crimson, violet, uh, violet fabrics. And who knows how to make engravings to work with the skilled men whom I have in Judah and Jerusalem, whom David my father provided. Then in verses 13 through 14, Hiram replies and says, Now I am sending Hammurabi, a skilled man endowed with understanding, the son of a Danite woman and a Tyrian father, who knows how to work in gold, silver, bronze, iron, stone, and wood. Well, that's interesting. Did you catch that little detail? Hammurabi is from the tribe of Dan, just as Aholiab is. Well, Solomon is from the tribe of Judah, just as Bezalel. 
I think then the scriptures are making connections between Bezalel and Solomon. Solomon is the Davidic king who will build a house for the Lord, right, in fulfillment of the promise to David. And just as Bezalel was fitted with all wisdom and understanding to do so, so now God has given this to Solomon. Now, ultimately, we know where this is going. We've already made a connection to the house of David. Clearly, then, the the fullest promise, fulfillment of this is in Christ Jesus, right? But let's see this a little bit more specifically. Turn with me to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. We're skipping over a ton in the prophets. Uh, We're just going to go to Acts chapter 7 to kind of get there. Now, for context, this is the trial of Stephen the martyr. He has been charged not only being a follower of Christ, but Christ as a man who they claim not only spoke against Moses, but specifically spoke against the temple. In the context, that's one of their their accusations against Stephen. Stephen responds to this in a very lengthy speech, and we can by no means cover it all. But to suffice to say, his argument in many ways is this. He has not defiled the temple of God, but they have by rejecting the true temple, Jesus Christ. For example, notice the theme of the temple and tabernacle. It begins in verse 40. He reminds them that they rejected God's tabernacle to worship the golden calves. He says, they said to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us, For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what happened to him. At that time, they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the work of their hands. Notice that last phrase. That idol was the work of their hands. That will become important. Then in verse 43, he reminds them that, hey, this was not a one-time thing that happened in your history. In fact, it kept on happening after the exodus. Stephen quotes from Amos, where it says, You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god Rumpha, the images which you made to worship. I also will remove you beyond Babylon. So he's going, okay, so let's talk about this. Who's actually speaking against the dwelling place of God? Okay, first of all, you did it with the golden calf, and then you basically kept doing it all throughout your history by keeping the tabernacle of Moloch, right? That was your tabernacle, and by implication, you were against, you opposed the tabernacle of God. But then he continues in verse 46. He says, David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. We're getting back to 2 Samuel 7, right? But it was Solomon who built a house for him, okay? And he says something very interesting in verse 48. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? Now, what Stephen just said is very, very important. He acknowledges, yes, on the one hand, the temple was built by Solomon, and it was really done because David found favor with God, right? It wasn't an illegitimate temple. It was a legitimate God thing. 
And yet, he hints that this temple could not have been a true dwelling place for God. Why? Because it was made by human hands. This is why he mentioned human hands earlier. And what does God say when he says, what kind of house will you build for me? In verse 50, was it not my hand which made all these things? Ultimately, if there's going to be a dwelling place for God, it must be built, we might say, with the hand of God or without human hands. But it cannot be made by the hands of man. Stephen's point, the prophet's point, is that the ultimate fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, the ultimate house that God shall build, shall be built by God himself and not by man. And really, his point is that Jesus was the one who did it, and yet they killed him. So who's really the one opposing the temple of God and defiling it? I haven't. You guys have. You've done it the whole way throughout your history, and you did it when the final builder of the temple actually came. This is why right after he quotes that verse, he says, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did, right? After all, what is Jesus accused of? Mark 14, 58. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Oh. Obviously, Christ is referring in context to the resurrection of the physical body. Since Christ, uh, the, the church, is his mystical body, we also understand that Christ, by his work, is that Davidic temple builder who has finally built the temple of God, built without hands. And if Bezalel and Solomon had tremendous wisdom for this task, how much more Christ, who is himself divine wisdom, particularly associated with creation. You know, we are all familiar with the term logos, right? Some of you might not even know Greek, but you could probably quote to me John 1.1, right? Some of you can. The logos, the word of God. While the idea of word is not inappropriate uh, with the logos, yet the idea of the logos is very much related to reason and wisdom. This is why even today we speak of being logical. You're not thinking logically. We mean you're not thinking according to reason or wisdom. So also Christ as the logos speaks to him being God's wisdom. As the early church father Gregory of Nyssa explains in his great catechism, God has a logos, else he would be without reason. Furthermore, this connects the logos to Christ as the builder of the church, since the logos idea is connected to creation, right? Gregory of Nyssa writes, God created the world by his reason and wisdom, for he cannot have proceeded irrationally in that work. Now, I couldn't find any early church father mentioned Bezalel, though not for lack of trying. But I did find something in Philo, which I thought was interesting because he did contribute to the development uh, of the idea of the Logos, a lot of which was taken over by John and assumed in John's gospel. But listen to what Philo said, just interesting. He said, now Bezalel being interpreted means God in his shadow. Uh, I would say, actually, in the shadow of God, but that's okay, Philo. You are, after all, an ancient Jew. Who am I to tell you how to speak Hebrew, right? 
But he says, now Bezalel being interpreted means God in his shadow, but the shadow of God is his logos, which he used like an instrument when he was making the world. Well, that's interesting. Now, does Scripture actually speak about this, right? Philo's not Scripture. I think it does, overwhelmingly, yes. In fact, even how the concept of the logos is introduced is with creation. John 1.1, in the beginning, right there, that's a reference to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart, him from, apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So Christ is the very wisdom of God. It is fitting, then, that he is an antitype to Bezalel or to Solomon as he builds the true dwelling place of God. Furthermore, we could connect this further. This is where you might go, okay, pastor, you're getting crazy. Um, to the logos of creation, it's fitting that he would build the church since the building of the church is simply the new creation itself. This is why when the church is finally revealed as completed in all her splendor, it's also the revelation of the new heaven and the new earth. John says in Revelation 21, 1 through 3, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Furthermore, as we consider Christ calling out the elect as he builds the church by word and spirit, this effectual calling is itself often described in terms of recreation, creation language. For example, 2 Corinthians, Paul says, For God who said, uh, let... Sorry, I'm not used to the NASB. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So again, it's fitting that the Logos through whom God created the world is the same wisdom of God by which he creates the church, the new heavens, and the new earth. And in so doing, he has created the ultimate spiritual building made without hands in which God shall dwell. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, I hope I'm not stealing anything from you, brother, by reading from Ephesians. I'll try not to comment much. Um, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So Christ is chief cornerstone, but also chief architect and creator himself. Now, any questions before we moved on? Move on. I know I kind of charged ahead. Philo is... He's a... He, Philo of, of Alexandria... He's a Hellenistic Jew living in Alexandria. Um, I, I, he's very influential among certain kinds of first century Jews. 
Uh, for example, I think the book of Hebrews has all kinds of undertones of Philo. Um, so he is by no means, he was not a believer that we know of, right? Um, he comes before the time of Christ. Um, but some of his stuff, like the Logos stuff, is, is taken by Paul, not, or taken by John, uh, not from whole cloth, but like, well, yeah, John, yeah, Philo, you got something right here, you know? Um, and so you'll find him, um, yeah, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. He wrote a lot about the Logos, so. Let me get there right now. Any other questions before we move on, though? We're doing okay on time. All right. Getting to your point, just as Bezalel and Aholiab had a whole host of men that they trained, Christ Jesus, the great builder of the church, had 12 apprentices, 12 disciples. These also trained others as well. In fact, it's very interesting how Paul speaks of himself in 1 Corinthians 3.10. Turn with me there. 1 Corinthians 3.10. I don't know if I have the words from um, the NASB. I think I tried to... Everything in here was ESV, and I tried to swap it out with NASB. But Paul speaks of himself, after speaking of the church as God's building... He describes himself as a, first of all, wise, wise master builder. Safas architecton. Architecton is where we get our word architect, but it means a master builder, right? Many commentators have actually seen this as an allusion to Bezalel, and some have actually suggested that Paul is likening himself and Apollos to Bezalel and Aholiab. It's interesting, too, if you look at all the things he mentions uh, about building upon this foundation, they're very much, it's like temple imagery as well, right? There's, there's precious metals and fine stones, all kinds of things that Bezalel and Aholiab would have used. In either case, the apostles are presented as Christ's apprentices following their Lord in the building of the church. And we could say, to get to your question, Billy, all of us, in one way or another, are engaged in the building of the body. Um, the, the kind of metaphor I've taken is we are apprentices. But I guess you could say as instruments, we are the hands or the feet or whatever have you of Christ Jesus, right? Uh, all of us, I would say, do this. And in fact, I would say this is a large part of what we do on Sunday when we meet together. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Or to tie back to love, 1 Corinthians 8, 1, knowledge puffs up, but love builds, it edifies. When we come together on the Lord's day, we build one another up. And not only has Christ called us out, he's gathered us as stones into the church, but he continues to build and to fit us on the Lord's day. As Paul says to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 32, and now I commend you to, the word, to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those 
who are sanctifying. So it's kind of interesting. Christ is chief cornerstone, but chief architect. We ourselves are also the building being built, and yet in God's mercy and providence and wisdom, he allows us to have a hand in it, right? We have a part to play. This should, as I said, humble us to remember that God doesn't need us for our labors. And here's a very shocking thing. This kind of freaks me out as a pastor. Just because you're laboring does not mean you are building Christ's church, right? After all, what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 3? After calling himself a wise master builder, he says, but each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each man's work will become evident For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man works, if any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. He doesn't need your labors, and your labors do not actually constitute anything unless they are according to how the master apprentice has taught you, right? Unless the Spirit be blessing those things. Lastly, we can take great comfort from the fact that while our wisdom is so limited, our strength is so feeble, yet Christ, who is wisdom itself, is building His church. And what a great comfort that is. Um, Sometimes I pray to God, I'm like, God, you know I don't... (laughs) you know I'm not smart enough to handle this, right? I really need you to help. And he's like, well, Ryan, I've known that the whole time. I think you're just now realizing it, right? Um, But he's got this thing. He has uh, Solomonic wisdom, but infinitely. And he knows what he is doing, okay? Um, That's all I have for today. We will look more uh, next week about the fact that um, this building is not apart from the visible church. Um, But any questions before we end for today? If you have them later, that's okay. Sometimes people, because I'm just like, I spew, and then I say questions, and everyone's like, no. And then like 10 minutes later or a day later, they're like, oh, yeah, I had a question. If you do, please feel free to ask me. Um, But that's it for now. Christ builds his church. You are dismissed.